0: Back to the March Mad Men podcast. We are splitting our thorough but loving autopsy of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre into three pieces. And this is the middle chunk. Let's rejoin the film, already in progress. Yeah, at this point, the hitchhiker is—he wants to make a final trick. Uh, but this is a nasty trick. His, his, his performance is no longer to amuse and delight his audience.
1: <laughs> he seems to go a little bit willingly when they when they open the door. Mm-hmm. Like I was sort of watching you know and then he, he's kicking the car and then he of course smears his blood over it. But you really get the sense that he was kind of like, well, this is done. It's not like they had to they had to throw him out.
0: Oh, no, yeah, I think he sort of planned his exit in a sense. They lost him, really, but he just keeps ramping up as well, like even as they pull away, like this is not the end, it's it's the beginning.
1: I also find the line, I'm about half ready to, to call a cop amusing insofar as they should definitely call a cop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They should should definitely be the first thing they do is alert a police officer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, all right. We got to pause it again there because we're about to go to the other house. Yeah, I did want to just add before we, we go on that that final rejection that the hitchhiker absorbs, it's troubling and disappointing at least, but then he bounces back yet again. But from now, from the context of instead of Trying to win them back, or you know, being open to it, he's overtly glaring at Franklin once he um, unrolls that piece of foil, and uh, he he keeps making sure Franklin is watching as he pours the gunpowder on the photograph. I assume it's gunpowder, and he's not rushing through it. He just keeps, you know, making sure his audience is there, still watching, okay, you know, here we go, grand finale. And then, you know, that sets off the screams and sparks the chaos. But the cut, where he slices Franklin's arm, like, very deliberately and with purpose, it doesn't feel, like, random at all. And and that's where I come back to the idea that, for him, the knife thing was like a game, and that's how it works, you, you keep trading cuts until someone quits, and then the other one wins the game. I'm, of course, you know totally speculating there, and it's not like the Hitchhiker is visibly covered in scars, but I, I'd buy it. But the, the specific decision to cut Franklin that way struck me as the Hitchhiker is going to get the slice that he was owed and then take his leave of these people. He's disgusted by them, like because they didn't abide by the social codes of his world. And they may not know it, but they've been in his world for a while. And the scene punches out all of Black Christmas, uh, I think, with a a laugh line where uh, somebody says, that's the last goddamn hitchhiker I ever pick up. (laughs) And (laughs) that's kind of how you punch out of the scene
1: something that's just true of of horror movies in general and maybe just life in general but that feeling of safety that you're in a moving car right Mm -hmm. there was something scary in the car but now it's out of the car and the car's moving and so we're safe again and i think the history of horror movies shows that being in a moving car may seem safe but pretty soon you run out of gas you get a flat tire your engine breaks, like something happens, and that safety is really just a, a, a really precarious illusion. Oh, yes,
0: absolutely. And the geography of all of this is, you know, absurdly tight, right, the way it all works out. And they, they kind of keep making the assumption later, um, and, you know, not to get ahead of ourselves, but but that of course that guy won't catch up to them and you know little knowing that the house that they go to is right next to this family's house essentially they're they're close neighbors but yeah back to the horoscope you know she's reading Pam that it, it could be a disturbing and unpredictable day <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's starkly humorous foreshadowing, but obviously the astrology's prediction is disturbingly accurate. And I just think this whole thing adds a odd, unexpected but not inconsiderable weight to the movie. As a work of the horror genre to have this non-supernatural film have that latent dimension running so consistently throughout it. I just, I love the complexity that weird undercurrents like that can bring to a movie like this one.
1: It's the, the rare horror film where I think that what you're talking about, those undercurrents of, of supernatural, which I, which I definitely feel are, the more I watch it, the more it jumps out at me. And then you get into the undercurrents of the generational conflict between the hippies and the old generation, the people who lost their jobs because of technology, and, and and that kind of element of it, this movie succeeds on a number of levels beyond just the horror of it, which is certainly a level on which it succeeds. But almost none of it is really character-based, and that's that's a that's a really really hard trick to pull off, and they absolutely nail it.
0: Like, in the sense that it's more sociological, like, larger, you said that you were okay with that as long as it's, like, making points about life, culture, society, like, has ideas, right?
1: It, it has layers.
0: Right. Right?
1: It's not, it's not a surface, it's not just a surface-level film. The surface-level film is unbelievably effective but you can you you can't watch a movie over and over again if all you're getting are the surface level thrills. You want to see what else is going on in it. And I think that's what part of what makes these autopsies so much fun to do is to really pick apart those levels that are operating underneath. And what we've seen now, you know, less than 20 minutes into this movie is exactly how many other levels there are and now we get to see how they play out across the rest of the film. They have master masterfully set up those layers this early into the film.
0: Parts of this movie where people are talking and interacting and, you know, all of that stuff, I've really, really enjoyed sinking my teeth into, and I found such meaning and intrigue in them that I don't want to say this like definitively but I mean on some level it's a little disappointing when it's basically there's no one left except Sally and the the lunatics and all of that kind of stuff sort of drops away and it just becomes so much more primal and unhinged but yeah I mean that's not to say there there's not some fascinating stuff but I just was like really shocked at how interested I was in like the first 20 minutes of this movie um, where like so little actual horror stuff has happened really you know Sally's horoscope is being read by Pam and it's pretty much it's a little on the nose but it's as they say, it's perfect.
1: Upsetting because I'm also a Capricorn.
0: Oh. Yes, well. Luckily, you made it through August 17th, 1973 by not being around. <laughs> Capricorns ruled by Saturn, she she says. Pinch yourself and you may find that what you don't think is real actually is. It's sort of the, the gist of the horoscope and yeah it couldn't be more telling so yeah there's this like weird sort of misshapen gas station guy who who looks up at the what appears to be maybe a a partial eclipse or something he's fascinated but again like tying into there's something going on in the celestial bodies of, of the sky that may or may not, it's unnoticed by the other characters, but it may or may not be exerting an an influence on on happenings.
1: Reminded me of of Trump looking at the
2: fucking eclipse. (laughs) (laughs) I'm surprised that this gas station character doesn't show up again elsewhere. He seems to have no affiliation with the family.
0: Yeah, let's pause it there. The the guy that Rich is talking about is the guy that's washing their, their van and there's going to be a what I think is a pretty delightful, comedic bit of business with him. But I, I was thinking that, like, is he a relative? Possibly. Is he just an employee? Uh, he certainly poses no threat to the family and whatever they're doing or not doing. There's not a lot, you know, going on <laughs> behind his eyes, clearly. So it almost doesn't matter. But he certainly doesn't seem to live at their house, they will put it that way.
1: Yeah, it's got kind of a sling blade feel
0: to it. Yeah, yeah. But he's curious about what's unfolding in the sky. And that ominous event, whatever it is, is not astrology, it's astronomy. It's very much real. Weird, maybe a little strange, sure, but malefic? I don't know. You you be the judge. And we meet the cook, or the old man, as I believe he's credited here, uh, he comes out uh, looking, you know, pretty sharp and dapper, and obviously he's a level above the hitchhiker, or several, in, in terms of his ability to pass uh, in, in polite society. His socialization is a, a lot more developed, and he kind of looks at first glance like a, a you know, a normal, a normal guy, at least for this neck of the woods. And uh, he says that the gas station, um, they don't have gas, and the transport won't be there until late this afternoon. So he's still running a business. The family is not entirely destitute, despite the closure of the slaughterhouse. Yeah, it's not like the whole family is, like, they're just bandits because they have no way to make a, a normal, an honest living, right?
1: You certainly get the sense that they're not... They're not making a ton of money off this place. No. They literally have you know, they have one gas pump. I've definitely seen places like this, and it would not surprise me to find out that the, the owner's home was <laughs> was something like the Sawyers.
0: Yeah. <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. This is all that's left of their legitimate business, I guess. And yeah, there's gonna be a little running gag here where the car washing guy stops washing their car whenever he thinks he's supposed to stop and then he starts when he thinks he's supposed to start that's just correlated to whether the cook is you know walking up to the van or walking away from the van and i i find it pretty funny uh, as it as it plays out but the, the that's the sort of in the background thing that what's happening in the foreground is that i think the cook is actively trying to scare these kids off He's not drawing them in to be slaughtered. I I think that when he invites them to stay at the gas station, he doesn't already plan to kill them, but you, you guys let me know what you think. I read when he says, like, don't go messing around with other people's houses. He knows that they are bound for the closest house to his, and he doesn't want them that close, and that prospect turns him serious. But like the hitchhiker before him, he hasn't necessarily turned on them at that point. And we'll you know, we'll we'll let the scene play and, and you can kind of bring that into it when you when you're ready.
2: Yeah, I mean there's an interesting question like kind of built into what, what you're implying a bit there, John. And it's not something that I feel like I really figured out with this movie, which is that what's going what happens on this particular day with these kids is this a common occurrence or is this a one-off? Like, I don't know that like we get the sense that this family has a serial history of murdering people as much as we get the, the, all of the the bones and everything that we see could potentially be coming from like the grave robbing. Right. Um, that we've heard about, you know, there's not a whole lot of implication that there, that, that there's a stack of corpses from other people somewhere in the, in the house. So, it's interesting. It's like, yeah, it's like they're, they're not the sort of like prototypical slashers that are, that are trying to sort of like bait them into their trap. Like they're actually trying to keep them away because they're a bunch of weirdos. I want to point out, I'm, I'm parked on the wide shot of this gas station and it's a little on the nose, but very faintly next to barbecue on the gas station sign. It clearly says we slaughter on the (laughs) side. again. A totally normal thing to be on a Texas gas station sign, but in this context,
0: yeah, I wouldn't have noticed that if it, we hadn't been paused on it, but yeah, I noticed it a few seconds ago as well. <laughs> but it's also like under a Coca Cola ad, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, the one thing like we read now as a cue or a clue rather that we're dealing with people that are praying on like they're highwaymen in a sense they're they're preying on travelers is when we see a bit later there's like volkswagen bugs two of them under like sort of a netting like there's there's multiple vehicles at the family farm that are just sort of temporarily mothballed or something and my thought seeing them was not that this family bought these vehicles legitimately. Like, they... I did get the sense that these were other travelers, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, they have this all kind of spider-to-the-fly thing going on where they're delighted that these kids have stumbled into their web, because I definitely see a lot of evidence to the contrary, as we've been discussing. I kind of feel like more... It's probably like these aren't the first people that they've killed, but they're not going out of their way to do it if that makes any sense. It just kind of happens, you know. It's um, not
2: every Saturday.
0: Right. <laughs>
2: <laughs> just when Mercury's in retrograde. Yes. Just when the just when the celestial skies demand it.
0: Well, yeah, like all of that sort of escalation that may or may not have anything to do with the astrology could be, you know, as simple as, if they hadn't escalated their activities at the cemetery, these kids wouldn't have come to them, and we'll see in a bit that Leatherface seems discomfited by their intrusion on on the family residence, and is alarmed and hoping people will stop coming into their house. And and so I I think that maybe that whiff of extra madness that motivated the hitchhiker to go ahead and share his art with the world, maybe maybe part of the catalyst for that was the effect of this, you know, celestial power influencing him and 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 that is that is what sets the dominoes falling. That you know doesn't have a great result for the family. I mean, um, the hitchhiker dies, and uh, things things obviously spin out of control for everyone involved.
1: John, discomfited seems like a bit of an understatement. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna throw that out there. <laughs> discomfited. <laughs> discomfited. Yeah, yeah. That, seems, that seems like a bit of an understatement for Leatherface. Uh, I I might say dismayed. He seems dismayed. Uh, that these people keep tromping into his house, yeah. Indeed, uh, indeed
0: he does. Yeah. All right. Should we uh, roll this as Mike likes to put it, uh, "beautiful bean footage"? Five bean four. Footage? Yeah. It it has to do with like a commercial that it was from his childhood or something. I don't know, but he loves saying it. Be- beautiful bean footage. <laughs> <All right>. <laughs> <laughs> so he's out of gas. Kirk will point out that they had the opportunity to get gas before and it seems like a big mistake you think (laughs) (laughs) no see the guy wheeling the bucket back and forth it's pretty funny so yeah they talk about the house that they're looking for and you can see like the cook knows all about it he's like maybe I've seen something like that up that way but he's keeping his cards close to the vest but he basically is discour—he's clearly discouraging them from going there, he's saying it's dangerous and whatnot. You don't want to go fooling around other folks' property. Some folks don't like it, and they don't mind showing you. I've not dug in on
2: on Jim Sidow. I think that's his name's yeah. career, but like he feels like he feels like a character actor I've been seeing my entire life.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I know he was the most experienced member of this cast by a long way
1: i still remember thinking when they cast arlie Ermy in the remake i was like like of of course like i don't know who else you could possibly get to play that part
0: yeah they have a real even physical resemblance speaking yeah. of the
1: remake you also get this, this visual uh, uh overlap of just shots right under a girl's ass
0: yeah, Wikipedia said that her wardrobe was the most comfortable of anyone, those cut-off shorts, in this heat, and I believe yeah,
2: it. I am actually feel a little ahead of you guys, but but I'm with Franklin back in the van, still mm-hmm. sort of like, um, now he's like really like pouring over this, this the the knife and the incident with the hitchhiker, like he's really just like replaying it over and over again, but...
1: That's right. Not no-
2: were even troubled by it so much.
1: Yeah. He seems interested. He seems curious. I'm also. I'm looking at all the bruises on Franklin's arm. Like Franklin's all fucked up at this point. <laughs> <laughs> That's what, what I mean. Is like there's there's a certain amount of sympathy for Franklin. Like he's been blown down a hill. <laughs> he had his arm sliced by this hitchhiker.
0: All of that is true. And again, he has. I don't know if it's a sixth sense or paranoia. But he he knows at this point that it's gnawing at him that the, that the hitchhiker is not done with them. And uh, of yeah. course he he's right. In the scene that we just watched, like there is a, a moment of tension between Kirk and Jerry for what it's worth. You know, Kirk is like the one that says they should have stopped for gas, and it's Jerry's fault that they didn't. And um, But, of course, he waits for Jerry to get out of the van to speak his true feelings about that. Franklin sticking the point of the knife in the side of the van is sort of interesting as well. It's like, what sense does that make? And he doesn't seem to know why either. Back to that sort of idea of people not knowing exactly why they're doing what they're doing as if they're being compelled in some way. I mean, maybe it's just a nervous habit, uh, being born as he's distracted. But part of me thinks it's that part of him that is like the family, or at least fascinated with them. And as Rich was talking about there, he says to Kirk, you think you could do that to yourself? Uh, referring to cutting himself. And it seems like an honest question. I think that, yeah, he Franklin respects the hitchhiker on some level, and he, he didn't want to offend him kirk laughs derisively at the very notion of of cutting yourself but this this ties back to the idea that franklin and the hitchhiker really were connecting in some way it was a mutual thing mutual interest
1: we're sort of paused on this frame of the van pulling away and you can see that the guy with the bucket is staring back up into the sky again
0: yes yes absolutely he is Transfixed by this partial eclipse or whatever is going on, Jerry returns to the van with uh, some barbecue, and I, I bet that's good meat. <laughs>
1: well, that's so. That's one of the things that that came up because that, that barbecue is going to figure heavily into Franklin's just his the actor's business. Yes. For kind of the the rest of his performance.
0: Oh God! Yeah.
1: Is that is that people?
0: I think there's a decent chance it is. Not yeah. not 100%, no. but could be.
1: If you're I tell you what, if you if you if you're watching this movie again, watch it with that thought in mind as Franklin like jams this sausage in his mouth and then like wheels himself around and it, it just makes everything that happens after this just A little bit more horrifying
2: (laughs) yes I will say at the the very least and actually I think this is more likely than the idea that it's human is that the movie is trying to draw this sort of parallel Mm -hmm. like this stuff that we've been hearing about the treatment of animals and the way that that the killings conducted and sort of like this like this cold-eyed nature on the way we view like slaughter and that these people are like so horrified by it, yet then a few minutes later they're sort of like chomping down the meat itself.
0: Oh, absolutely! Howdy, I didn't
2: realize
1: I didn't really realize it until just now. But gosh, the the christening of my barcoa pit right before we <laughs> recorded this is is sort of prescient.
0: Absolutely, I think you're really onto something with that whole thing. That you know, the notion of being fine with eating meat but being incredibly squeamish about the process that goes into it, which, you know, even with better technology and everything, you know, there's no escaping the fact of what the brass tacks are, even, you know, before you get to making hot dogs or, or stuff like that, let alone head cheese. And uh, it is something that, let's call it a theme, certainly, of, of the movie, I think one of the interesting things is how far of a jump, a leap, is it really to go, well, you'll do that to this form of life with feelings and a brain, you know, uh, to what's the difference between them and us as far as if you're turning them into food, you know, if you're slaughtering for food. It gets blurry, right, Or, or fuzzy, the differences. And I think the movie is somewhat having ghoulish fun with that. And also the idea that if people are really comfortable with that notion with animals, how difficult is it to just take the next step and be that comfortable doing it to humans?
1: The traditional barbacoa is made either with beef cheek, which is exactly what it sounds like, Mm-hmm. or literally just a whole cow's head.
0: Wow. A cow's which head. I,
1: which I could not bring myself to <laughs> to do. <So.
0: laughs> well, just interesting, Vic. I mean, you mentioned, like, I, I noticed, I watched you, whatever you were cleaning the chicken, whatever that was, right? And I mean,
1: I, technically spatchcocking, I suppose.
0: Okay. But <laughs> Well, you know, like, you're comfortable with that. Uh, I should be comfortable because I eat it. But, you know, for me, at least in that moment, and my sister has a lot of chickens that they, they wouldn't eat and all that, like it crossed a little bit of a line of comfort for me. And, yeah, that's just all that kind of stuff is what's sort of percolating in this movie in a way. Yeah. Uh, oh, not
1: not just comfortable, John. I, I actually get quite a sexual thrill. <laughs> but... <laughs>
2: Uh. Just saying just saying the word spatchcock really <laughs> like... <crazy. laughs>
0: I'll never think of the word spatchcock the same way if I was going to hey, think about horrible. it. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Before we uh, sync up and hit play, I, you know, just for logistics, we do learn that Newt, uh, the town that we keep mentioning, the little town of Newt, is the closest place to get gas other than this gas station and we know that that's back near the cemetery so that kind of informs what the characters do or don't do because they would just be literally driving back to where they just came from uh is their other bet
2: even by movie time i think it's a pretty good estimate that they've been driving for it it minimum an hour since they were at the graveyard
0: oh yeah At, at the very least absolutely so Jerry kind of took charge and went and talked to the cook off camera and got his barbecue and some information. And this is the first time we really see the bloody smear that the hitchhiker left on the flank of their long green van. I can't make any sense of it. Could you guys?
1: No. Yeah. Can we talk about Jerry's hair for a minute, though?
0: Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It's 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 maybe the most 70s thing in the in the whole uh, movie. Well, his
0: paisley shirt is pretty 70s as well.
1: That's true. Jerry, <laughs> Jerry is the most 70s thing
2: in this whole movie.
0: Mhm.
2: Yeah, he's also clearly the oldest
0: character. Yes. Or, or yeah, at
2: least the oldest actor.
0: Totally but agree with like, that.
1: It's like his defining characteristic is just his hair and his shirt.
0: Yeah. Yeah, he reads a lot older than the other characters.
1: Because I don't know what else Sally sees in him.
0: Well, he's also a pretty obnoxious guy. I mean, in a bit, he just like all we see of him is delighting in taunting Franklin that the hitchhiker is gonna is after him and and wants to kill him.
1: While Franklin is eating, what is what is potentially a
2: human penis?
0: <laughs> yes.
2: That's not what a penis looks like when you smoke a <laughs> Thanks, Rich. This is the kind of expertise we expect Texans to bring to the to the conversation.
0: Uh <laughs> so
2: also uh, once it's reduced to its edible form you call it pizzle.
0: Wow. Wow. Rich does have a level of insight that's a little unsettling as we watch this this film. <laughs> So they're arriving at the old homestead, the grandfather's affluent home which someone has let fall apart for reasons unknown, and we get the second or third vampire reference of the film here when I Franklin was just gonna mention Yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah, let's go ahead and pause it cuz I wanted to mention that he referred to the hitchhiker as Dracula a couple of times, I believe. And then he says this looks like uh, Bela Lugosi's birthplace, uh, I believe. This is a little out there, but is it possible that there's a theme or a correlation in this film between vampires and this family in the sense that vampires drink blood and these guys eat you? There's similarities for sure. But, like vampires, these folks are relics of a past that won't die.
1: I'll give you that too, but I also like I find myself thinking of the Frankenstein references in uh the Fun house, and I think that that Toby Hooper is just a fan of the old universal monsters. That's something that just finds its way into his movies this way or that
0: that That certainly makes sense. I'm probably going a step too far with that. But I want to point out that their plan here is that they're going to detour to Grandpa's house and then return to the gas station later. Essentially, they turned down the cook's offer of hospitality the same way they did the hitchhikers, where he offered, like, you can stay here and eat some food and the gas truck will come and you can be on your way. So they're doing exactly what the cook told them not to do.
1: Yes, but they're also just turning down head cheese over and over again, which is honestly a rational thing to do. Well, unless you're me and Rich, unless you're me and Rich in Texas.
0: They took the barbecue.
1: The pizzle, you mean? They took the
0: pizzle. Yeah, I mean, they obviously, you know, Jerry didn't stick his nose up at the food. Oh, I did. I think I wanted to mention but didn't, that uh, as Franklin starts to, you know, he continues to process this. He he lands on the idea that the hitchhiker was threatening them in a more long-term way by burning his picture. It was of symbolic importance, that act. And of course, you know, Jerry feeds into it, like kind of delighting in the idea that the hitchhiker um, it was all about Franklin, which There's a lot of evidence to suggest that that's true in the hitchhiker's mind, but uh, unfortunately, the hitchhiker and Franklin do not cross paths again, as as the the way things turn out. But I think that failed bromance is, is kind of a bit of the story here. You know, it was Franklin's photo that was taken. He's the one that the hitchhiker tried to connect with. Franklin is worrying about it and he's wondering he keeps wondering if the hitchhiker is is following him. And he he spits impotently at the mark of Zorro, as uh Jerry calls it on the van. This old house, like maybe it was a safe refuge at one point, but not anymore. It's become a scary place. I don't think it's been a, a safe place in a long, long time. Ah, yes, I see the uh the dingus in Franklin's mouth.
2: <laughs> like a cigar. That's a classy yeah. look to have a sausage yeah. hanging out of your mouth like a cigar.
0: Now is there like a little stick like uh, on the end of that? Is no, it speared? No. no? He gets
2: mm. he gets handed it back in the van and it's just like a it's just a rogue sausage.
0: Yeah, he just took it out of his mouth, so yeah. He's staring in fascination. This is where he's going to spit impotently at the at the bloody mark on the van.
1: There's much discussion over what happened to his knife, uh,
0: yeah. which I
1: feel like doesn't really pay off anywhere. Am I missing something?
0: No, I, I noticed that too, um, and I was going to try to track it, but I don't think it does pay off, the idea of his his knife going missing. And honestly, I don't think the way things played out, it would have done him any good, right?
1: I would like to see Franklin have that knife versus a chainsaw, yes.
0: So Kirk is exploring the house, and we get this just weird, spooky thing where he's confronted by this nest of squirming insects. Let's pause it there. What I, I think of as harvest men slash daddy long legs, Rich? Did, did you did you have a lot of those in Texas, or or what's the deal with oh, this? Oh yeah.
2: yeah, yeah. The place is crawling with them, honestly. Wow. I mean, I've never seen I've never seen a nest of them as tangled as as what was what shows up in the movie. But like, sure, they were all over the place as a kid. Yeah. I just assume they were for everybody, but yeah, I agree with you that like it's a it's kind of a random little haunted house moment. Um. <laughs> There's something about this section of the film, I will say like just kind of like dips. like it's like whenever this part happens, the 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 bit between the van and between and showing up at the family's home is kind of a uh, like a blind spot in my memory after this film is over. And I don't know why. it's just that there's no real progression here. Like they're kind of looking around a, a house, but like I don't know that anything is really happening plot or character wise here except for the part where Franklin blows raspberries uh, a couple scenes from now.
0: Yeah, for me, I think, like, you know, I have I have notes and stuff on this section, but I realized watching the movie that I didn't remember what happens to Jerry, I guess, to your point. Like, I was, and that's later, but for me, it's more like, there's such a, um, I guess, a sameness or even a repetition to what happens with Jerry to what happens with Kirk that I just never remember it because it basically is, plays out almost exactly the same way. And that's not something that I'm sure I, I love. And it is notable, as I say, that I've seen this movie 25 times that like I could get this deep into the movie on view you you know viewing 25 and be like
1: what happens to jerry again (laughs) well but i think this house the house itself and obviously we we linger on it for for maybe longer than is necessary but the house itself is representative of what happened to a lot of the people who lived here right granddad worked in or you know sold cattle to the the slaughterhouses And now his house is overgrown with vines and daddy long legs are are spawning in crazy, uh, weird tangles. There's just something of dilapidation. It's almost like like sort of Southern Gothic. This used to be this this prosperous place and now it's fallen apart and, and people are clinging to this idea of what it once was. Uh, and the people, the people in this case being the Leatherface and the cook and the hitchhiker, that they still have this idea of what it should be. But this house is kind of a representation of what it actually is now. It's gone. It's moved on. The world's moved on. The, the Southern Gothic thing hadn't really occurred to me until just now, but it's kind of appropriate.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great observation. There's the idea here this nest of spider-like bugs, so many thousands of them, impossibly many, that there's something vaguely uncanny about it, the way that Kirk is suddenly confronted with them. And I think it suggests, you know, to your point, that something is not right here in this abandoned house. And I think that feels unnatural, but it's also just part of the larger concept that this is... This place has been spoiled. it's fallen to ruin, it's corrupted now into essentially what is the walking corpse of a now dead way of life a way of life that was murdered perhaps by capitalism. and now it's vengeful and unhinged. That's kind of my my vibe here, but I think it is you know very much tied to the themes uh, of the film. And-
1: I agree, and unnatural, like the love of a man for a horse.
0: <laughs> you said you were Damn, done with that, know, that joke. I wasn't do that. I'm sorry, <laughs> sorry. All right, that's it, Vic. One more joke about Clydesdales, <laughs> and you're off the podcast. I'm just muting your microphone. <laughs> I deserve that. <laughs> yeah, I think that uh, all all of that is it's a rich broth of, of of meaty goodness. Okay.
2: (laughs) All right. Honestly, honestly, this is just like, this is just every third house in Texas. This is just (laughs) like maybe, maybe in Haddonfield, this is exceptional that it's like, Oh, there's a house that closed and no one's like picked it up off the market. But like in Texas, it's just like this, this, this shit's littered all over the highways.
0: Wow. From North
2: to South and East to West.
0: I love that, but it's creepy. It's creepy as hell. Jerry's just kind of being a dick as she, you know, reminisces Sally about her childhood and her bedroom and everything. And Franklin is admittedly left behind and having a hard time even, you know, making an effort to rejoin them at all. And he has this epic struggle with this doorway. It requires tremendous effort for him to get himself through this dilapidated doorway and he spits the meat out and he throws his little hanky or something and he's just like this is, if this is the greatest challenge he can overcome um, today he's going to have a hard time making it out of this movie alive
2: (laughs) I want to know, I feel like the implication is that it's the same sausage he's had in his mouth for I would estimate the last 20 minutes (laughs) Yeah. Yes, which makes it sort of tragic
1: that he spits it out in frustration. Yeah. Like, I wish there had been a moment where after he spit it out, he went, "Ah!" <laughs>
0: <Like, laughs> I mean, you don't know how long that thing was originally. Uh... <laughs> he nodded down <laughs> to a nub. I guess about, seven, I guess about six inches. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. You know, he's stewing because he feels abandoned and, and unwanted, which, of course, he is. He starts mocking them, you know, laughing in a you know a parody of the girl's laughter.
1: I get that this is sort of over the top and everything else. But it's also, it's kind of the only thing in the movie that feels like a performance. Or certainly the only thing from the, the this collection of teenagers that feels like a performance,
0: you know? What do you mean? Like, it's... Like it doesn't ring true, or what? What do you mean?
1: No, 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 no. The, that, the, All the other characters are very bland. Oh, I nothing, see. There's okay. nothing. There's nothing distinctive about Jerry or Kirk or or Pam or even Sally. I mean, Sally certainly, uh, I think, has a little more to work with later on in the film. But Franklin stands out as a character. The reason we all hate him. No,
2: you're right. You know? I mean, say, you know. say what you will about Franklin. Like you remember Franklin? Yeah.
0: Absolutely. When I nobody,
2: mean, nobody remembers. Nobody remembers what the
0: fuck happened to Jerry. Literally, yeah. I mean, I I, I came into this podcast saying that Franklin is one of the most indelible characters in horror cinema, and I didn't remember what happened to Jerry. So if I was one of these actors, like, yeah, I think I would probably be a lot more proud of myself being the guy that – I forget his name right now. Let me look it up, but we should mention it, of course, the guy who plays uh, Franklin – who is, of course, it is Paul A. Partain, who, who does a, a great job. Okay, yeah, let's pause it when he notices this sort of totem on the ground. Another work of art, courtesy of the family. This work of inspiration being present, I think, and you see even a bit more in place here, it strikes me as something marking the place, and it is perhaps a claim staked. In fact,
1: it reminds me of the the girl's corpse at the beginning of Jaws in that you kind of look at it and it's horrific, but I'm also not exactly sure what I'm looking at.
0: Yeah, this one's a bit of a muddle compared to the masterpiece represented by the grave cemetery corpse thing, which again, yeah, could, rep, could be as many as three corpses uh that know, that makes an impression
2: it's interesting, like you're i mean this read that you have on it, all the little works of art are like a message, and like maybe they are. I'm not saying they're not, but it's just like my read on this also is that just based off of what we know about these the characters in the family is that like this is just how they are sort of like expressing themselves in passing time and that it's not necessarily left here as like a totem or like a, a message to be sent to someone as much as it is that this is just like literally something that they felt compelled to do in the moment and created and left behind like oh, I, no. I just don't know that there's that much for like a master plan in terms of like how they're they're inner how they're how they're interfacing with the outside world like i feel like everything we've talked about with them implies that they're not really going out of their way to interface with the outside world including their victims
0: yeah but i mean i think it's a big world out there and the fact that they would come to this place and be so bold as to Create one of their little totems or two. Like they, there's something hanging here too that you're about to see. I, I think that that represents, you know, a, a transgression of this was someone's property, someone's place, and now it's it's not. You know, now it's up for grabs, and there there's a an audacity I think to going into someone's house and 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 leaving this kind of calling card behind that I don't think is just completely thoughtless or accidental I mean I I think that it 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 means that they've this, this is you know now part of their not you know fiefdom or anything but you know that that this now is is their turf in some way, and I think that that doesn't seem like overly I'm, I'm as ascri- you know ascribing them with some kind of mastermindy kind of thought process or anything at all.
2: I just think based off of like the the performance of just even the hitchhiker at this point it it, it would be just as likely to consider this as like they left them like a gift like this is something that they would think that the occupant would be thankful for
0: yeah, yeah. no, no that is yeah. true. I, I could see that interpretation. Uh, absolutely.
1: This, this could also just be like Saturday night, you know?
0: <laughs> we, well, Let's if the Clyde sale wasn't available, <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> Let's drag some bones over there and uh, see what we can do.
0: So, yeah, just doubling back to Franklin's outburst real quick uh, that we that we passed over. He's just such a juvenile character, right? I mean, everything that he seems to express here, especially, is inarticulate, infantile rage. That's how I would describe it. And when he says, if I have any more fun today, I don't think I'm going to be able to take it. It's just a classic funny line, though. I, I just <laughs> do like it he senses the threat, but he's just too preoccupied with his own anger at being left behind.
1: I very much get this sense that Sally invited him because she felt obligated to. Yeah. And he went along because he never gets invited to do anything. You know what I mean? So there's, Mm -hmm. there's kind of this sense in which neither, he doesn't want to be there and she doesn't want him there but this familial obligation has led them into this position where they're both kind of miserable. And that's what family's all about.
0: (laughs) Totally, totally. No, I agree with that 100%. Nobody wants him there, and he knows it, right? I mean, we're about to see Kirk confide to Pam his true feelings about Franklin, and it's not a surprise, but he basically says he'd, he'd love for Franklin to be put out of their misery, right?
1: That's what you're seeing from Franklin. He doesn't want to be there either.
0: No. You know, no.
1: He's, not, he's not excited about
0: this. No, it's out of his comfort zone, for sure. Yeah. But he's so wanting to be wanted and, you know, wanting to have a connection and be a part of things, not be left behind, right? It's, that's his psychology, for sure. And, and that's what motivated him to uh, to be tagging along like a puppy dog, which he does throughout the film.
1: And which makes him to me a little bit sympathetic. Of
0: course, of course.
1: Yeah. 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 Nope, John, you ate him. Heard it. <laughs> He's unredeemable.
0: Yeah, we got feathers and bones and it's kind of a mishmash this particular creation that they leave behind. And Franklin is uh, unsettled by it. And then he and then he looks up and he sees like this hanging bone thing. Which, um it's another clue. We cut to the young couple running to the swimming hole that they never get to. <laughs> that <laughs> Franklin them directions. They
2: didn't bring
0: your oh, oh my! <laughs> oh
1: my God! We don't have our swimsuit. Oh wait, there's no water. It's, it's
0: it's. We almost got uh, that quintessential scene, but uh, they don't make it to a swimming hole. <laughs> Yeah, maybe it's dried up, you know, when he says this must be it. Like they're in sort of a trench. So it used this used to be the swimming hole. I didn't really get that before, but that seems like what's going on.
1: I also notice when she says, how did Franklin ever get here? And he says someone must have carried him when he was little. It's kind of the only, you never get an explanation for why Franklin is in the wheelchair, but you certainly get the sense that he's been paralyzed from birth.
0: Yeah, it's like a congenital thing, not an accident. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the last actual laugh line of the movie is when he says, uh, Franklin was never little. Yeah. Last <laughs> <laughs> intentional like, laugh line. Okay, see this watch that's uh, impaled on a stick there? Let's pause it there. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's pause it there, because I think there could not be any stronger indication visually that civilization has regressed in this location than the image of a delicate instrument like an old-school pocket watch impaled on a sharp stick. Just loud and clear, the message you get here is, here's our response to your civilization. It's cool. I think it's just such a great indicator that there's only the faintest veneer of civilization left at this homestead. And, uh, you know, this is definitely not something we need to get into in detail tonight, but the Sonny Bean story is clearly a factor here, comes to mind, uh, which, of course, is the root of The Hills Have Eyes, which, of course, as Craven said, he was as inspired by this movie when he wrote The Hills Have Eyes as the Sonny Bean story, but um, it all is in the DNA here, and we'll, we can talk about that more in the future.
2: I just want to point out when when you're talking about the the refusal of uh, like modern civilization and and delicate tools is that this family has a a host of cars on their property and they own a gas station. And yet the only character that we've really met was hitchhiking.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's right.
2: And And a gas generator.
0: Yes. Yeah, they have a gas generator. Yeah, that's the thing when we see these multiple vehicles in a moment that I, I just take that as a sign that these guys are bandits of the road in some way. And I think of these newish cars because the VW Bug was a relatively new new vehicle at that time. They're, those are the vehicles of easy prey or, you know, just the kind of people that would clash with these people if they were to cross paths and it's not like the hitchhiker knows how to drive or has any inclination to do so you know the cook drives a pickup and all of that but leatherface ain't driving around town that's for sure and i do want to point out that kirk's notion here which dooms him is that he hears this gas generator which tells him oh they have gasoline back to that kind of idea of being a hitchhiker yourself or understanding hitchhikers when you encounter them, he immediately thinks he'll trade his guitar and a couple of bucks, they'll get some gas, they'll go back to Newt and they'll get gas, and um, his whole plan is that on their way back, He'll, you know, drop off some more gas. and like it's this, He has this whole sort of quid pro quo, hey man, it's all cool, way of the road thing. And Pam has bad vibes and knows it's a bad plan, but uh, he's determined to make this transaction happen.
1: What well, never occurs to him that, yes, they have a gas generator and thus must have gasoline, but why are they powering their house over the right. tiny guest dinner
0: yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, that should raise a red flag. There's so many things we'll see here that should raise a red flag with Kirk that he seems bliss blissfully ignorant of or uh, willfully ignores. Speaking of the generator, he has to explain to Pam what a generator is, and, and maybe that's of the times. I give this movie all the credit in the world, but it it did seem a little odd to me that you have to explain what a generator is. But then that made me think of, like, in Dawn of the Dead, I always laughed. I think everyone laughs when they're watching Ken Foray and the Flyboy character. They first see the mall, and they have to explain what it is because it's cutting edge. And that seems odd Um, But, you know, there was a moment where people had to explain what the Internet was to each other. I I remember I was there. So I'm just going to chalk that up to that.
1: Well, also, Pam's into astrology, so, (laughs) you know, she's, she's probably not very hip to other things.
0: Gas generators. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. That's definitely fair. Okay. Let's hit play. I just love the cinematography here
1: agreed the cinematography across this film it's so distinctive there and there are a couple of like exceptional shots like it has that in some ways it has that grainy like i spit on your grave kind of feel yeah but then it has these other things john i noticed the uh there's a shot here with a whole bunch of sunflowers that made me think of the sunflower shot in texas chainsaw 2022
0: That's a great point. Yeah, I wasn't really associating the Sunflowers with the series, um, but they make such an impression in that movie, in the 2022 movie. Uh, Here's the the Volkswagens and stuff, which I just don't see anyone associated with this family being like, at the dealership, yeah, uh, I want one of these bugs, you know, uh, that will just immediately uh, cover with a, a net and not drive.
1: You know, it always makes me think of the National Lampoon's magazine joke, it was like a Volkswagen Bug, like floating on the water. And instead of Ted Kennedy, had been driving a Bug, he would have been president now.
0: Oh, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> that's dark and funny. <laughs> dark and
1: funny, buddy. That's
2: what yeah. you, guys, you come to March Mad Men for. <laughs> Indeed. the The whole film was shot. Sorry, just to to harken mm-hmm. back to that point. It, it was all shot on sixteen millimeter, which is which is crazy. I mean, like films don't get released on sixteen millimeter. I mean, certainly not today. Oh, yeah. Uh, You know, not even 20, 30 years ago. Um, I mean, like, the 70s was, like, the last period where you could really get away with that and actually get a a widespread release.
0: Yeah, and it is such a grainy look.
2: It looks fantastic, though, honestly. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, really, like, the the whole... I know, at least the version I'm watching, I I believe, is, like, a restored, like, anniversary edition, but, like, it looks fantastic.
0: Yeah, let's pause it here. I have... um a special Blu-ray type thing. I think it's the 40th anniversary. That might be what you're watching. I mean, at the moment, we're watching it on, on Shudder, but it doesn't look bad on Shudder either. Yeah, they, they they were using a film that required insane amounts of light, which is probably part partially why it was so hot all, all the time when they were shooting indoors, is all the lights they required in the indoor um, scenes. But as long as they got enough light, yeah, it looks it looks fantastic. Uh, there's a great texture to it, and they move the camera so much. I mean, it's we talk about the guy climbing the trellis in in Black Christmas being you know dynamic. We're about to get to honestly my favorite shot in all of cinema. Uh, I You know, I, I don't expect everyone to think it's the greatest shot in all of cinema, but just on an emotional level, it's my favorite shot. And I'll, I'll kind of give it away because we just saw it. The the chair swing, is it seizes our attention immediately, even the first time we see it, commands your gaze for some reason. There's already a dynamic shot as we approach it from behind, watching this young couple move towards the porch of the house uh, at the same time. I sort of thought this swing was like one last vestige of genteel society because it looks freshly painted. It looks inviting. You know, there's no bones or shit on it. You know, it still looks like an artifact of when possibly this family was closer to normal, more inviting, more, um, I don't know, you know, um, whole and happy before the deterioration really kicked in. Before we hit pause, because maybe we'll we'll let it run until the next big moment, um, we get a clue that Kirk disregards. One more of those. When he hits the porch, a large tooth rattles across his path. He picks it up, and what is his first thought? Oh, I'll scare my girlfriend with this. Apparently, he sees no warning whatsoever in that.
2: <laughs> I, I respect <clears throat> that in her. <laughs> I'm sorry. While you were talking, I went down an internet rabbit hole on the the fact that this house itself was actually picked up and relocated to another town yep. um, in Texas, uh, where it currently is housing a restaurant called the Grand Central Cafe. And I've never been there. I've been going back to Texas my entire life, and I've never visited this place. I feel ashamed.
1: It's yeah. I. So, it's not just a restaurant. I believe it's also a and B. And I have texted that to Emily and been like, "Can we do this?" Uh, she has just not responded in in the affirmative. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, I actually wrote a whole script about a haunted house being moved uh by truck. And I I think that I'm I'm tickled by the fact that this house was was physically relocated and that it still exists and yeah, of course I would love to go there.
1: I I read that script, John. It's awesome. But gentlemen, Thank you. this is our this is our guys weekend. We're going to go to Texas. We're going to stay in this house we're going to eat fucking head cheese. Come
2: on!
0: <laughs> Who's with I me?
2: Am, I am checking the menu now to see if head start, cheese is on the menu. Start <laughs> lobbying your wives.
0: We
1: start now. In two years, we might be able to do this.
0: I, I will say, my wife has to go to Texas three times next year on business trips. So, And I'm going to go with her on at least one. Hey. Uh, she's in Dallas, but maybe, you know... It's a small state. We could go anywhere. (laughs) I will.
1: I will borrow my in-law's car, pick you up in Dallas six hours away, (laughs) and then we'll drive to this house another six hours away. It's going to be fine.
0: I like it. I like the way you think.
1: (laughs) But seriously, I'm throwing it out there, gentlemen. I'm game.
0: I'll, I'll pass on the head cheese, but since fate has me headed to Texas anyway... Uh, we could pursue will, this. <laughs> you will, John. You going to eat that fucking head cheese. <laughs> oh, God. All right. Uh, should we... we... Yeah.
1: Wait. Before you do that, question. Mm-hmm. If you either had to eat head cheese or watch Halloween H20, which one would you pick?
0: You know, it... it... <sighs> It's surprisingly easy for me to say I would rather watch Halloween H2O. Oh, my God.
2: That means you're going to have to eat the head cheese, dude. You fucked up. I mean, in fairness, the the process of making both of those is roughly the same.
0: (laughs) And the output is roughly the same as well. You don't know that, Tom. Let's leave that to the imagination. So he's knocking on the door. He's trying to get somebody to trade him. I don't think... He, he didn't, doesn't even have his guitar with him, but uh figured that out later. And then we get this tooth, of course. This kind of gnarly molar. And we won't get this crazy, you know, music sting when he hands it to her, but you can see the... Bum-bum-bum! Like, her big reaction.
2: Who does that, though?
0: Yeah apparently.
2: All the time.
0: <laughs> so he opens this door and he's saying hello, you know, he's kind of stridently and she storms off to sit on the swing and she's pissed and has bad vibes. Look like how are both
1: just throwing their shirts over other people's <laughs> furniture.
0: Yeah, certainly taking advantage of the assumption of hospitality.
1: And not at all put off. By the the just enormous number of skulls on the wall i mean it is texas but still
0: yeah jerry reacts to this later um yeah. but but this guy doesn't now we hear a pig squealing and you know the question is always is that leather face or is he actually slaughtering a hog oh, oh my god here we go this is it. yeah oh, unbelievable now, they say there's no blood in this movie, but but I, I see blood. I, I see blood. Yeah. <laughs> of course, we're but talking you know about the killing of, of Kirk here.
1: The twitching legs is worse than any blood. Yes. The, the way his legs are twitching before Leatherface drags him inside and slams that door closed is horrifying.
0: And, and this is my, my favorite shot for me, personally, in in my life in movies is going the camera goes under the swing and follows pam to this house and we now fully know what goes on in this house and the music complements it beautifully it's just chilling and let's pause it as she approaches the the door the front door and you know man if anybody gets a raw deal in this movie or a rough 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 final however long of their life it, it is, Pam. Uh, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. So, yeah, the backing up to Kirk going into the house. Like, we talked about Jess going up the stairs with the poker in Black Christmas. Is this defensible? I, I will say that at least his behavior is consistent. He's Kirk is not seeing a threat here, or at least he's sticking to his optimistic narrative no matter what willfully ignoring the reasons not to forge ahead with determination and great persistence as he does and you know like if that red wall loaded with the full range of skulls that this family has hunted and mounted as trophies doesn't turn you away i i guess nothing will
2: he heads for it
0: yeah then right you straight for it.
2: another room first
1: <laughs> you're I right mean, i think I think there's something generational about this. Like I it's it's I look at it now and I'm like, "Who the fuck? Like, do you knock on somebody's door and nobody answers and then you walk inside?" But I also remember being a kid and like fucking around in people's front and backyards all the time in ways that I would never do now that I would I would crush my kids if they did. And so it's I I do think there there was in the same way that you would pick up a hitchhiker. There was just kind of this this assumption that everybody was kind of decent. And then, you know, you could you could very quickly explain why you were in there or whatever, Uh, because he's hearing these noises. So it's it's mostly just him trying to get someone's attention. So I do I do as much as I want to be like, you fucking moron. Maybe in 1973, it wasn't quite as weird as as it seems to us now.
0: Well, yeah, and the whole idea that nobody locked their doors in so much of the country until you know a certain time that was you know later than this, right? Um, well, that...
1: it was it was when it was when all the serial killers started showing up. So.
0: <laughs> yeah. Obviously, yeah, different world, different sort of trust and different kind of social covenant and all of that and. Clearly, yeah, Kirk has a an idea that that his his offer will be received with understanding, and yeah, he seems to react to like the pig squealing. It spurs him on. It, it that seems to be what gets him to just fucking go into this house, and I, I guess that yeah, it's like it doesn't freak him out. It's like okay, somebody's obviously slaughtering a pig here, so you know, I I can there's someone for me to talk to, right? (laughs) And then he's like kind of running headlong into that, that hallway. He trips on the entry, and I suppose it's a bit silly in a sense, but you don't have time to process it. It happens so fast that you're okay with it because the scene then literally and figuratively drops a hammer. There's just this meaty crack when Leatherface whacks him. The image of Leatherface, this sudden, triumphant first appearance of the character, is so jarring. So take it to the next level, messed up, that I feel that as an audience member, you're as felled as as Kirk is. We're just floored along with him. Bubba is left to deal with the mess, we get the second crack of the hammer is necessary as as Kirk is reflexively kicking in death like a slaughtered animal bleeding out from his head wound. and I guess it's true. Yeah, it does take two good shots to finish him off. the film might be a little sped up here. I think it's sped up maybe a couple times throughout the movie. Just makes the moves quicker and more violent after the long hang of that of that shot with Leatherface preparing to bring down the hammer it's also kind of funny that this huge vitally important so memorable kill in this movie is not with a chainsaw a, you know there's we know there's only one death by chainsaw in the texas chainsaw massacre
1: it harkens back to all the discussion we've had about sledgehammers and you know killing livestock and that sort of thing but it's i think this is as iconic and as important to the history of horror as the shower scene in Psycho, I think it's it's, it's one of the most brilliant sequences, uh, certainly one of the most brilliant kills ever put
2: to film.
0: I agree, I totally agree.
2: So much of it is like execution dependent. I mean, like the main thing that I was taking down as I was watching it and, and rewatching it was the the sound design of it, and not and not just like the the quality of it from the sort of like <clears throat> the thudding like clang of the hammer to like the sort of hollow tinny sound of his heels tapping against the, the the floor but there's also like the the amount of restraint that it shows certainly by like what we've come to consider like modern horror standards which is like there's there's no like searing strings or squelching synthesizers when leatherface appears he just appears it's very, like, stark and naked and feels kind of empty. Like, there's almost a moment, like, Kirk, where you as the viewer aren't even really being told how to feel about what's going on. There's just a moment of dumb confusion before the hammer drops. Right.
0: We're as stunned as he is. Yes, absolutely. And then we get this music sting, though. and It's not conventional. Yeah, there's nothing conventional about the score. But with the slamming of the door that steel door being accompanied by this sting, it just tells you what movie you're watching and that this is a very bad place, this house. You do not want to be here. And of course, none of the other characters know that. They don't know what's going on right here so close to them. And it's very chilling. And again, that's what kind of imbues the next shot, that bravura tracking shot of the girl getting up from the swing and the camera following her in her red jean shorts as she approaches that house. The camera's at this ominous low angle and it's just so filled with menace because of what we just saw. Now we know what she's walking into and there's something otherworldly and darkly ethereal about the score there as she leaves that swing to approach the house. But it's overtly menacing for sure. And we know that Pam has not been oblivious to all the signs the way her boyfriend was. She's deeply discomfited, if you will. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Even as she feels uh, compelled to explore this house. She knows Kirk went in here. But she does it anyway. She goes in. So I will point out that, yes, there is a, a certain dynamic that, you know, just one by one these characters wander into this house. There's certainly no effort made to like kind of shake up this dynamic. She kind of has this perpetual grimace of concern and, and, and doubt.
1: Well, and here we get a little more exploration of the house, too, right? Like you yeah. see more of the animal skins, and we're getting ready to get the really sort of horrifying and very Ed esque burst of horror.
0: Right. This is the art room, I think.
1: She trips over something and lands on the floor, and I. So then the room, as she looks around, the first thing she sees is this chicken. Yeah. And then you're gonna look around and get all the the bones and the furniture and the and the sort of decorations and all this crazy shit. The fucking feathers, I find increasingly unsettled. <laughs> like, Yeah. Like, yes, but why are there is one chicken in a cage? Where did all these feathers come from?
0: <laughs> they look old, too. Like, old feathers. and Yeah, yeah, just left there. I mean, this couch is amazing. This couch from, like, Absolutely. the seventh pit of hell. The devil's couch. It's just so chilling. But, yeah, she's really freaked out by the chicken in the cage. Like, that, that, that commands her attention for a while. Okay, and this, like, skull mobile, like, uh, floating around. And then the, like, tortoise shell. Both of those items have the whiff of violence in them like a large animal horn has been put through the mouth and skull of a human the suggestion of violence there and this cracked open turtle shell just everything has kind of the hallmarks of violent death in here and she's just taking it all in like there's this quiet terrified desperation is how i i think she's playing it how i see it in this nightmare room there's just so much evidence here in this room that this is the home of the people who have been robbing graves for quote-unquote some time. And there's bones everywhere, as as you said, but that's not all. There's clearly human skeletons used for artistic purposes, like the couch from hell. And so you just kind of know this is the artist. This is some artist's workshop, whether it's the hitchhiker, Bubba, some combination of them. I think you get very clearly somewhere, maybe only in the sequel, that the cook would rather play it straight. The cemetery stuff and this, none of that seems like his M.O. at all. It's obviously some combination of the two boys that are into this, at least in my opinion.
1: Well, there's an overlapping, too, here of the animal bones and the human bones Yeah, that creates the suggestion that... There's not really a difference to them.
0: Totally. In their eyes, you know, humans and animals, you you chop them up and you eat them. Uh, Yeah, there really is not a distinction. Other than, like, again, like the, the sort of veneer of socialization that two of the three members of this family, I guess there's four with grandpa, but of the three main family members we we see the cook and the hitchhiker make an effort to relate to people and but yeah like uh, you can clearly change your your view uh, uh, of someone from a potential friend or whatever to dinner Um, that that's well within the realm of possibility for these characters
1: there's also something horrifying when you talk about the couch, and and some of the other stuff. But I feel like the couch especially. Yeah. The amount of time it took to put that together, that that was a that was a vision somebody had. Hey, let's get bones and use it to frame this. You know, you can hang a, a arm bone. You know, the hand that's hanging from the ceiling. You take the hand bone, you put a string around, you hang it up. That took time. That was somebody's vision for what that piece of furniture should look like. And that is honestly more troubling than the chaos uh, around the rest of the room, the sort of piles of bones. Again, not that that's not unsettling, but to Mm -hmm. me there's something more unsettling about the picture that's painted of Leatherface or the hitchhiker putting together those things in the time that they put because it was important to them. I don't know. It's, it's, it's Somehow yes. that makes it more troubling.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, that that shot is so chilling. When we're just... Yeah, they don't break it to us in, in a, a master shot or something. You just suddenly are confronted with that. Filling the frame. And it, it's yeah, just such a, a work of someone that you don't want to be in the same room with. Like, you just washes over you that this is incredibly disturbing this the work of art you know in their mind it's it's art it's meaningful it's it's not just a a laugh and even if it is like that's just as unsettling on some part on some level so the insight into the psychologies of these people is often as disturbing as just watching their actual behavior right I mean, I know that's not a good condition for a chicken to be kept in, but that's, like, not the most disturbing thing in the room for me. (laughs) We see all the implements and tools. Like, this is where the magic happens. (laughs) The workshop.
2: So much of it seems collected, which doesn't make it healthy. (laughs) But, like... But I, I feel like there's an interpretation that it's like this is like a trophy room, and like I I don't necessarily know that that's the case.
0: If they've killed all these people or something? No, not necessarily. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then he comes out. He opens that door, chases her out, and this is such an excruciating moment. She almost gets out the door, and he drags her back in, and and her performance is so convincing as she's screaming wildly, as Leatherface drags her back through that door this is probably the hardest moment of the whole movie to watch as we know he's going to hang her on that hook and it's just brutal. You see the blood all over the wall and she's, you know, stricken with this incapacitation as well as just the horror of it. The scene just keeps going on. He, he's going to go start up the chainsaw. There's a bucket under her to catch the blood, but first he is going to chainsaw her her boyfriend to pieces in front of her who he is already mercifully dead but she witnesses him leatherface decapitating kirk's body while suffering this unimaginable thing all right yeah let's pause it on this windmill and this actually is my my stopping point for tonight but let's let's talk about what we've seen Her mindless, panicked screams to me are, are pretty convincing. When he grabs her and methodically pulls her back into the house, down the hall, into the kitchen, and hangs her on that meat hook, as much as the movie has a reputation for uh, restraint compared to Black Christmas, for example, I think this entire sequence with the young couple meeting this grim end is hardcore. And there's plenty of blood. I mean, at least compared to that movie, we do get blood in both situations with Kirk and Pam and yeah just Pam hanging there watching Leatherface decapitate her boyfriend with a chainsaw it's it's horrifying it's absolutely horrifying and then her screams and the saw kind of blend into the spinning windmill and I I assume the score the what looks like the setting sun all of it suggests that for her this goes on for a while and that will be confirmed when Jerry arrives And I just kind of read it as the next level of hell in the film's cinematic nightmare. As all the other noise falls away eventually, and for the last few seconds of this shot, we just hear Pam continuing to scream. There will be no quick death for her. And you also have to kind of take into account in some way that this is the Cassandra of the group, our are, are soothsayer, the one most aware of everything going on around them, even some of the stuff in regards to the astrology and Saturn being retrograde and all of that, that might be real or might not be, but at least should be considered. It's on the movie's radar, and she knows it. It's a rough, rough, rough fate for, for that character, for the character who's kind of in the know and you know distrusts everything from the beginning.
2: Leatherface never seems more content or just like generally happy to be like going about his work than he does in this scene. <laughs> like like Leatherface is like in his element. He's just in like a flow state. He captures her and like pulls her back and he like puts her on the the meat hook because that's just where like you put the screaming girl. Oh, and man. then it's like he gets the chainsaw and like he's got sort of like a He's got a little spring in his step as he like sets about working on uh working on Kirk. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's not till later that like the distress sets in with Leatherface. Like at, at this point, it's like he's happy to sort of be doing what you know what he loves.
0: Yeah, he's not fretting about it, right? Yeah, it, it seems like he's kind of on autopilot and not necessarily savoring the details or anything. But this is kind of more in his wheelhouse, I guess. He knows how to handle yeah. the situation. Exactly. Yeah.
1: It's uh it's like slaughtering a pig.
0: It's rather like uh getting a wart removed.
1: Oh, <laughs> nice. <told. laughs> I was I was going to say that and I this is one of those weird things that you just remember after so long in the entertainment industry. I very distinctly remember when Platinum Dunes announced that they were going to remake the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and there was kind of a, a blowback. It was one of the first remakes, uh, and really sort of spurred the glut of remakes that we got after that. But there was a lot of, of blowback of like, "What? Why would you? Why would you want to remake that?" And they had to release this statement that said uh, they intended to focus on the suspense. Uh, aspects more than the gore. And Toby Hooper came out and was like, what are you talking about? Have you actually watched the film? It's not that gory. And that's if you watch the scene that we just watched, she gets hung on the hook, you don't see any blood pouring out of her, you don't see any blood falling, you see the bucket underneath her but you don't see anything in it, and you don't see him actually do anything to Kirk. It's all implied which I think is part of what, what Toby Hooper was saying, but it's also part of what makes it so masterful, is that it's a horrifying scene with almost no gore.
0: Hooper tried to get a PG uh, rating on this film, and that's like just laughably inconceivable on the level of how disturbing it is, but at the same time, you can see him kind of going out of his way not to show knives cutting through flesh or chainsaws or you know any kind of classical gore effects where we see the the effects of this gross bodily trauma on anyone yeah you don't you don't see that it, it's kind of both all at once like it's both really restrained and one of the sort of most over the top intensely disturbing movies that are out there in this genre and both those things can be true
1: <laughs> yeah which which is pretty extraordinary
0: yeah absolutely absolutely well that's a good note to end part one on and um i i do think and maybe i'll be wrong of course and i'm looking forward to discussing the the rest of the film but i i i found so much to discuss in in this part of the film and and it informs what follows but we're we're going to get increasingly visceral as the as the film goes on the descent into this mad nightmare only becomes more riveting and inescapable so yeah it'll just be interesting to see where our conversation goes from here but i'm looking forward to it any final thoughts tonight uh rich you first
2: pacing of this movie is so interesting like like you're saying the, the the title and the the memory and the cultural phenomenon surrounding this movie conjure up an image of carnage and chaos and yet this movie is a good 60 percent of it is driving around in a van talking and wandering <laughs> around like in a in a field there's a lot of like build up to this movie especially for a film where like to mix to the point that you're making Vic, is like there's not a whole lot of character development here either like this movie is is short but it's also a a slow burn and it doesn't really hit its climax or really like a sort of like an acceleration point in terms of the the action until like the last 20 minutes of the movie and yet it still sustains your interest so yeah I, i see what you're saying like there's a lot that is happening in terms of the sort of world building that's happening uh within this film just over the course of I'd say like the first hour and so the, I think that's part of what you're reacting to John because because after that then it just kind of like lets the hounds loose and then you're you're just watching one character really sort of suffer a nightmare from from here on out or from well more or less from here on
0: out yeah from that point on I mean we're at 40 minutes we're pausing here at 40 minutes. And I think what I would call Act 3, at least at first blush, like when I was watching it for for this show, is the exact midpoint of the film in running time, which is kind of mind-blowing and, and weird. And of course, you know, camp isn't possible structurally, that half of the movie is Act 3, but that's kind of where that gear shift happens. And almost the entire second half of this movie feels like act three of, of a normal movie, but that's how like pronounced this shift in tone and, and story is and intensity of the film. It's a little bit further than halfway. Cause I would say that truly happens when Franklin dies and that that's where we really kick it into that higher gear.
1: Franklin dies. <laughs> I mean, I'd be curious to, to go through it like this, through the, that latter half of the film, and see sort of structurally how it plays out. But it really is, as we were talking about sort of stylistically with the editing and, and some of the other stuff, like, it's a descent. Like, this is a movie that structurally really does just start with a bunch of happy kids in a van and goes down and down and down and down. There may well be a sense in which this movie defies sort of Sid Field traditional structural uh, identification, but we, I, it's it's certainly fair to say that this is a uh, you know I think Kirk's death qualifies as a a first plot point. Uh, it's a big step down in in terms of the the descent that this movie's following, but. Fuck, guys, this is, I, it's a lot of fun, man. This is a lot of fun to do with you guys because this is a really, really interesting movie.
0: Hallelujah. Amen, brother. Totally agree with both of those sentiments. And I hope everyone listening enjoyed it as well. Uh, we'll be back soon. And until then, keep that uh, van full of gas, man, so you don't find yourselves in this situation.
1: Yeah, fucking get gas and nuke guys. Very
0: new. <laughs> there. Until then, adios.
1: Good night. Good
2: night guys.